Welcome to Amplify, the personal brand entrepreneur show. Today on the show, Bob is speaking with Mike Alton. We are in a culture and a society today where tension spans are by nature very short. We are bombarded by billions of bits of information every day from our environment, to television, to the radio, to internet ads, to emails, to notifications on our phone. And to break through that noise, it does typically require some short bit of intention grabbing information that can cause us to stop scrolling, right? To stop the thumb, so to speak. Hi there, and welcome to the Personal Brand Entrepreneur Show, where every week I speak with incredible people who share what makes their business work. And if you're new to the show, take a second right now while you still have that device in your hand to subscribe. On most devices, it's super simple. So I look forward to welcoming you to the family. Now, this week, I'm really excited to welcome Mike Alton to the show. Mike is a social media polymath, virtual events specialist, all-round social media man about town. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate that you uh, have invited me on here. I can't wait to have this conversation. <laughs> so, Mike, I could introduce you, but I tend not to do that. I like my guests to introduce themselves because it just makes more sense. You know what you do much better than I do. So for, so for the listener who doesn't know who you are, what you do, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and the kind of work you normally do? Yeah, so... I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, right in the middle of the United States. And I've been working in digital marketing since the early 2000s, so two decades now. And for the past four, almost five years, I've been working with Agora Pulse, where I'm the head of strategic partnerships, which means I'm in charge of our relationships, which is really about the coolest job in the world. I get to go have relationships with influencers, brands, product partners, Facebooks, and, and so on. But I also have the social media hat. That's the personal blog that I've had for over a decade where I write about social media. And more recently, I've really leaned into the virtual event space, helping people understand how to leverage virtual events, that sort of thing. And I also have the 360 Marketing Squad, which is on the one hand, a personal mastermind with myself, Jen Herman, Amanda Robinson, and Stephanie Liu. But we also have spun out of that a book a membership club, consulting, speaking, and that sort of thing. So I wear a lot of hats. And I think that's really where I, I want people to understand where we're coming from in this conversation. Because there's not very many people who have been in the business for two decades. And there's something about time which deepens and tempers skills. It takes things from the intellectual to the instinctive in a way that nothing else can. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation because there's not very many other people who have been doing things as long as you have. I really appreciate that you said that. And it, it reminds me too that in college, I didn't study marketing or business or anything like that. I studied history and computer science, which is like, wow, why did, why did you study history and computer science? The computer science part was easy. Back then it was all programming, which was in essence problem solving that's something I bring to the job every single day. But the history part is fascinating to me. I studied European history. That was my focus. But what it instilled in me, less about the knowledge of European history, that's not really in play today for me, but it's an understanding of how to tell stories, how to 
document stories and how to have this view of how things are progressing over time, which is what really keyed me when you said that, that time phrase. I have an historical view of the development of social media marketing because I predate social media. I'm older than Facebook. <laughs> you know, and obviously a lot of people are older than Facebook, but a lot, not a lot of people, like you said, have been in digital marketing but since before Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. So they don't necessarily have that deep understanding like I do of how these networks, how the very idea and concept and tactics of social media marketing and other forms of digital marketing have evolved over time. And that is really useful to me today when new networks pop up like Clubhouse and I see people flocking to Clubhouse and there's a lot of buzz about a network like Clubhouse. I can caution my audience, my clients say, hey, look, I've seen this before. I know our history as a culture, as technology, as society. Maybe you should slow down and not jump into that particular network because like Blab and Meerkat and so many others before it, it might not last. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think as well, having that historical perspective allows you to relax into the long game a little more easily. Too many people think of social media in particular as, as a short-term play, that you need to see the ROI today. But actually, that's very rarely how anything works. Especially, I mean, you'll know this from your blogging background. For most mm -hmm. people, a blog will feel like a waste of time for months or years until one day it's it's the one thing that has the clear blue water between you and all your competitors it's the thing that drives your business it's the engine but you have to have that long-term perspective and social media is similar in that people often focus on the individual post but it's the tapestry those posts create over time that actually has the biggest impact yeah absolutely so moving from blogging which to be fair, back in 2000, in terms of digital marketing, was essentially it. That was digital mm. marketing back then. What do you bring from that period as an asset now, I guess, that allows you to tell stories differently? The question that I'm trying to ask is, blogging was where we were at in 2000. It was the meat and potatoes. Now in 2022, there's an awful lot of distraction. There's a lot of ephemera. How would you define the meat and potatoes or the, the fundamentals of digital marketing now? What's the most important ingredient that people should get right before they start worrying about any of the peripheral stuff, like perhaps TikTok, like perhaps Clubhouse or that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm I'm nodding my head in agreement for, for everyone who can't actually see me because you said it right a moment ago. You said that people, I don't remember exactly what you said, but you talked about ROI in this misperception that ROI can or should be delivered instantly from a channel like social media. It's not practical. It's not reasonable. And yet, all of the buzz today, and it's been this way for at least a few years, is around short-form, quote-unquote, snackable content. We see this all the time. Snackable content. Everything's got to be snackable, snackable, snackable. And I understand where that's coming from because we are in a culture and a society today where attention spans are by nature very short. We are bombarded by billions of bits of information every day from our environment, to the television, to the radio, to internet ads, to emails, to notifications on our phone, and so on. And to break through that noise, it does typically require some short bit of intention-grabbing 
information that can cause us to stop scrolling, right? To stop the thumb, so to speak. But the problem there is that there's too much of a focus on creating snackable content. So much so that for many people, for many brands who don't really understand the reasons, they don't understand the why, they don't get the engineering, they just see the tip, they read the top 10 blog posts, and they say, okay, I have to create short TikToks. So they go create short TikToks. They don't understand the why. And so all that they're doing is creating snackable content. There's no long form content to back that up. And that's the problem. You have to have more information in order to actually persuade your audience. And that's really the key to marketing. We have to persuade the audience that A, maybe they've got a problem that they didn't even know they knew, that they didn't even know existed. And B, we're the solution to that problem. Whatever it is, whatever product, whatever solution we're selling, that has to solve for a particular pain point that our audience has. And we have to be part of their buyer journey, which means we have to be providing persuasive information that educates them around the problem, around the solution, around us as a supplier of that solution so that we achieve no like and trust. And you cannot do that with a 30 second reel. It's not possible. All you can do is entertain and grab a little bit of attention enough to gather that interest, to lead them into learning more from you. Now, it doesn't have to be a blog, right? I know a lot of people struggle with writing today and and that's fine. You can create video content. Obviously, you're listening to a podcast right now. You, like Bob, could create a wonderful podcast that brings on amazing guests. Not that I'm amazing. Other guests are way more amazing than I am. But you bring on those amazing guests and they share some of their wisdom. And as the podcaster, you get to impart that and you get to share in that authority and build audience and drive that audience into whatever products or services you offer. That's long-form content. It's got to be there. And I think that's really the most important thing. I think as you were speaking, I I had a little visual in my head of it's the difference between the crazy guy at the event who just runs around high-fiving everybody and everyone gets really excited, but nobody ever really meets him. And the person that really takes some time to get to know his audience, spend time with them, have conversations, build relationships, the like, know and trust. You can't build a really strong bond in short form content, but you can meet someone, but it really is just that first encounter. You, you, you need to deepen that bond in long form content. And as you mentioned, education and content as a service is really, really powerful. And I think for me, that's often the element that's missing. Now, content as a service, I think the area that you excel in is the live content. And I know you train people in that as well. It's an area where I've kind of dabbled, but I've struggled, if I'm honest. And I think I'm going to be really selfish here and I'm going to pick your brain for all it's worth. (laughs) Hey, that's the best part of these (laughs) kinds of interviews is when you benefit from it. Yeah, I need to learn to be a, 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 a slyer host that just maybe pretends it's not <laughs> all selfish, but I'm okay with it. No, I'm only kidding. Lots of people like me, they've tried little bits of live content. They maybe tried a live stream and nobody seems to be paying attention to it or tried short virtual events and things like that. But for somebody who's maybe brand new to live, but they're ready to take action on something, what do you think is the most productive 
way to take the first steps into live content if you don't have a massive audience? I think that's probably a good place to start. Yeah, and, and I love this question because there's an underlying question, which is that I don't have an audience, but I want to do something new. Yeah. And I don't want to fail. I don't want to be discouraged. I don't want to look that's stupid. hard. I don't want to look stupid. Yeah. And this is true, whether we're talking about live video, a podcast, a blog, an email newsletter, a course, it doesn't matter. You name it. A new retail shop on the corner of your street. It doesn't matter what it is that you're starting that's new. But when you're starting something new, you're starting from scratch, from zero, just like everybody else. And that means you have to be patient and you have to show up. You have to be consistent in whatever it is it's going to be. If it was a brick and mortar shop that we were talking about, you're opening a pub down the street. As a pub owner, you wouldn't even consider being open just two days a week. And it would never cross your mind to only be open on two random days per week because you know from a retail business perspective, your audience requires that you have set hours, set days of the week that you're open, that are predictable. And yet for some reason on the marketing and the content side, too many people think, well, I'm going to start a live video, but I am not going to commit to going live every week because I'm busy or whatever the reason they want to fill in the blank. The problem there is that we don't build in consistency. We don't build in predictability. We don't build in fear of missing out when we don't show up for our audience. So that's the first thing that I'll, I'll just preface everything I'm about to say is that when we're launching something new, whether it's a live stream, a podcast, business, whatever, you're going to have to commit and you're going to have to commit not only to a regular schedule, but a long-term window where you're going to show up on a regular basis during that window, regardless of the results. I'm doing that right now with my own podcast. I just started a podcast. It's one month old. I mean, literally at the time of this talking, it's it's like 35 days old. I've I got six you. episodes. I've got, yeah, I've got six episodes plus an intro. I'm not driving thousands of people into that podcast yet. And, and maybe I never will. And that's fine. It's a niche podcast. It doesn't need to have a large audience. But I can't reasonably expect that after just six episodes, I would have tons of people flocking to this show. It, it's not possible. I have to give it time. So I've committed to not only every Wednesday dropping a new episode for this podcast, but I've committed to doing it throughout the rest of this year. Six months, I've said to myself, that's how long I'm going to do this before I give up. And being honest with you, as you're being honest with me, that doesn't mean there aren't days of doubt, right? When I drop an episode and in the first day, there's a couple dozen listens. I'm like, oh, that sucks, but I'm going to keep going. Because I know, and this goes back to your earlier you know, insinuation, I've been doing this long enough. I started with blogging, content marketing. I, I know this will work over time. So that's the preface. Give yourself time. Give yourself some patience and be consistent. Show up for your audience. Now, when it comes to video, there's a lot of ways that you can approach it. And if you're not comfortable on camera, get comfortable on camera. Practice, practice, practice. That's the only thing that's going to make you comfortable on camera. 
So you can start up a personal Facebook group and you can go live there and you can invite one friend if you want to and go live there and, and get some feedback on your video. And I would certainly recommend doing that if you're not highly experienced with video because they can also give you some performance and technical feedback, right? They could say, hey, that seemed really dark or hey, your audio was lagging your video because there, there are things that are a little more challenging for us to notice when we're actually in the act of filming the video, whether it's a live stream or a virtual event or whatever. So it's nice to have another pair of eyes to, to look or listen and give us that kind of a feedback. The second advice I would give you is to watch a lot of other videos. And that's hard. It sounds like an easy thing to do because technically it is easy, but it's one of those hard things to do because it requires time and intention. And it's something that I personally have never been good at. When I wanted to create a course, part of me knew I should go take other people's courses to see how they're building their courses on Thinkific and Kajabi and Udemy and so on. I didn't do it. <laughs> I just winged it and figured it out on my own, <laughs> which in retrospect, you know, I shouldn't have done it that way. But I felt like I didn't have the time to go consume other people's courses. And so I didn't take that time. And so I have no benchmark. I don't know if my course on blogging is any better, worse, or indifferent than other people's courses, regardless of the topic. And I don't suggest that for anybody else. No, but none of us went to school for live streaming probably. So watch other people's live videos. Go tune into Stephanie Lou. She goes live every other week on her personal channel. She goes live on the Agora Pulse channels every other week with Agency Accelerated. You can see what a professional live streamer looks like. And then you can go to her YouTube channel and learn from her. Go to Ecamm's YouTube channel and learn from Stephanie and so many other people that they have set up there as partners. That's going to help you tremendously. I absolutely agree. The role models are the most underrated. I mean, obviously it's not underrated, but so many people think they know enough to wing it. But actually when you do watch people doing something that you're trying to get good at, you learn so much, much more quickly. I want to talk about more structured events like summits mm. and challenges and that kind of thing in a bit. Something that plagues me is, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a live stream. I'm going to do it weekly. I'm going to do it every single week. No problem at all. I'm going to do it Thursday afternoons. Now I go live and in my head, I was thinking, you know what? I'll do open hours. There'll be people there asking me questions. I'll answer questions. It's going to be really cool. But it doesn't happen. Audiences can be very slow to start participating in this kind of event. So how would you structure your first live streams, anticipating that there isn't going to be very much engagement or activity? How would, how would you structure those first live events in order that you're not left with dead air? Yeah, that's a great question because it really lends itself to an earlier question, which is why are we going live in the first place? What are we trying to accomplish? Because if it's audience engagement, if that is actually what we want, and it might be, then we need to come up with a structure to the show where audience engagement is guaranteed. And I'll tell you a little secret. The only way to truly guarantee get audience engagement is if you bring in ringers. You've got to right. line up some friends, <laughs> some colleagues, some peers and say, look, I really need you to show up for me on this day, at least for a few weeks. And 
help me by asking questions. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's something we do in the virtual event space too, for a lot of the same reasons. There could be a hundred people watching a virtual presentation, a keynote address, and there's an opportunity to ask questions and it's just crickets. There's a hundred people there, but they don't necessarily want to be the first one to come on stage and that sort of thing. So as an event organizer, if we really want to encourage engagement, if we've blocked out 15 minutes for Q and A, right? And, yeah. and we want to fill it. We got to have people lined up in advance to ask questions. We have, have to have questions queued up, but that assumes audience engagement is the goal. Well, what if it's not? What if the goal is demonstrating our own authority? Or what if the goal is the creation of the live stream content itself? Well, in those cases, audience engagement is a nice to have. It's a bonus. And there's a lot of wonderful reasons to have audience engagement. But that also means it's not something we need to worry about. We can handle audience engagement if it's there. But if it's not, that's okay too. I mentioned Agency Accelerated earlier. That's our show at Agora Pulse. And audience engagement is not the goal. We do build in hooks and prompts. And we're obviously monitoring audience engagement throughout the show. And there's there. It's, you know, people show up and they ask questions, but that's not the goal. So if we have a show where for whatever reason, there aren't a lot of attendees or there are no questions, that's okay. Because our goal is in that case, the content. So in our instance, we're bringing on a guest. And this is one of the, one of the three ways you, you can help yourself, right? First I mentioned have some ringers in the audience. The second is use a guest. Have somebody else that you're bringing onto the show that you're either just having a conversation with or you're explicitly interviewing them. You're the host. They're the guest expert. And that allows you a couple of things. It allows you, number one, somebody to talk to other than you know this faceless audience of people who may or may not be watching and asking questions. It also gives you the opportunity to bring in expertise and knowledge and information and style and voice that are different from you and that may be different from episode to episode. And of course, there's also the fact that if you're bringing in an influencer, somebody who has an audience of their own, well, then they can bring that audience with them. Hopefully you give them opportunities to share the live video and the pre-promotion they're tagged and mentioned so that they can amplify that content. They can invite their audience in to watch and now you've got additional audience, at least additional reach with your content. I, I mentioned, you know, there's three ways that you could approach it. The third way is it's just for brand awareness or personal brand awareness, in which case you're going to go solo. And that's what I do with my own podcast on virtual events. I go solo. I may someday have guests, but my goal with that podcast is first and foremost to educate. But secondly, it's to demonstrate that I'm the one who can educate. I am the one who can be a consultant, a strategist, a guide for brands. So with those shows, they're scripted. They're hundred percent scripted in advance. Now I'm not doing live video. I'm doing recorded podcast, but yeah, it would be the exact same if I was, if I wanted to do those live, I could, I've got the script. I could make slides and screen shares and, and do all kinds of things that would make it much more visually interesting than just watching me <laughs> talk but that's all prepared in advance. Or you could have um, an outline, you could have bullet points, however you want to prepare that material in advance. But the point is, again, you're not depending on an audience at that point. So my question here, and I think I know the answer, but me knowing the answer is not the point. 
what is the advantage of going live? If the goal is an audience engagement, what is the advantage of live over pre-recorded? I would say, I haven't really thought this through, but I'm thinking there isn't an advantage. If well, audience I, engagement isn't important and it's not expected. Now, that's, now, there's a little bit of a nuance there, right? It may not be a goal, but if you know you will get it, well, then there is an advantage there because maybe it's not a goal. But if I know people are going to watch and they are going to comment on my live stream, then I know as a social media marketer that when I go live to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and so on, and I get engagement on those channels, those networks will push that content out to even more people. So there's greater reach. And additionally, there's no editing and people know it's live. Mm. And so your requirement to be on point as a presenter is, is far less. People know it's live. They don't expect a super polished performance, so to speak. So I think just because there's less moving parts, it's actually more likely to get done. And I think the fact that it gets done is what makes it very appealing because you know That's yourself, if you're, try, if you're trying to do a YouTube channel, well, you have a lot of things to worry about. You've got scripting, you've got shooting, then you've got to edit it. And then you're going to hmm. procrastinate at that point. <laughs> uh, and you're going to have to look at yourself on your screen for the next 40 minutes while you edit this five minute video. And very quickly, you're going to think this is terrible, hit delete, and you're no longer going to be a YouTuber. With, with live streaming, you hit go live and it'll be all right. I think that's what makes it quite appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, you you really hit it on there. It's the same with podcasting, right? I edit, I record a 10 to 20 minute podcast on the weekends and then I spend hours editing it. And it, that's the most <laughs> grueling part of my weekend right now. I, and someday I'll outsource it and that'll be the happiest day of my life. Well, but I would grueling. love to help you bring that bring that closer. I, I, <laughs> delegating the podcast editing was the best thing I ever did. Yeah. So let's talk about more structured virtual events then. So things like challenges and summits, because I think this is where you spend most of your time helping people grow. So here's a good question. Who is the kind of person you are normally working with in this space? Where are they in their business and where do you help them go? Yeah, typically I work with B2B SaaS companies. So I don't do much B2C. I don't do nonprofit organizations because B2B SaaS is where my experience lies. Specifically because with B2B SaaS, we're usually looking to events like webinars, live summits, and so on for lead generation and sales phone development. So the goals are typically the same. And those B2B SaaS companies are typically ones where they've done few, if any, webinars, virtual summits, so on. They know that it works and they want to be successful their first time out. They don't want to spend thousands of dollars and get a hundred people to show up. They want thousands of leads. They want to fill that pipeline. So often it's startups and uh, you know people that just got some seed funding and they're looking to make a good, smart investment in building out their sales funnel. And they say, oh, okay, we could host a virtual summit and we could design that summit so that it expressly targets our ideal customer profile, our targeted ICP. And when we're building this event, 
We can have registration that qualifies them and we can have content that further qualifies and engages them. So now after the virtual summit, we can share with our sales team thousands of leads and those leads have already been qualified. We know which ones would make for good buyers and we paid attention to the sessions they attended. We paid attention to the booze that they went to, the conversations they had. And so we can further qualify them and say, hey, look, 50% of the registrants are qualified buyers. And of those, here's an, you know 20% that they're warm. They're warmed up. They are ready to buy because they hit those three sessions that are all about the solutions that we offer. That's a tremendous opportunity for brands. And, and that's what I really enjoy working with them to, first of all, understand that if they don't really get how virtual events plays a role in their sales and marketing, but more importantly, how to structure and ideate what that virtual event looks like and build it up from scratch. Uh, so I, I give them the complete strategy to do that. Because I know you, you, you do public speaking, you're quite a confident presenter. Are you actually helping them facilitate on the day as well? Generally, no. I do work right. full-time for Agorapulse. And so I typically don't have bandwidth to do remote live production of other people's events. I produce our own events at Agorapulse. Yeah. So I usually refer out uh, to consulting companies and agencies and so on if they need that kind of help. Sometimes they don't because we, when we have our VIP strategy days, me and the clients, we work through a workbook that has everything they need to figure out from building out what the event looks like, pre-production, pre-promotion to the actual run of show for the day. We have run of show for each individual session, assuming they're live sessions and a runner show for the entire day overall so that they know what's going on. Often at that point, they walk into Monday with everything they need to actually run the event themselves. But if it's a multi-track, multi-session type of live summit, right, where they maybe have 40 speakers and they're running three or four at a time, well, they need some help for that. And that's definitely where we can find you a good agency to assist. So if I was thinking about doing something like say a one day challenge or a summit, what would be the three things that you would warn me about not to screw up? The, the three <laughs> things that you see people forgetting every single time. There's definitely three or four. These are the first episodes of my podcast. In fact, uh, very deliberately because what I wanted your to podcast talk clients, called, by the way, it's called the virtual event strategist podcast. And the first four episodes highlight these areas because those are the most critical areas that I wanted everybody to think about. The rest of the podcast episodes is very topical. Maybe it applies, maybe it doesn't. So number one, you got to understand your why. Why are we having a virtual event in the first place? What are the goals? What's the purpose? What are we trying to accomplish? And we really need to drill down into that. It can't just be leads and sales. It's got to be much more specific than that. When I'm sitting down with a client, we will spend an hour or more flushing out, why are we doing this? Because if it's just leads and sales, well, why not paid media? Why not ads? Facebook ads are cheap. Why aren't you doing Facebook ads? You know, what is it about virtual summits or a challenge or whatever the case might be that you think you need to do it or, you know, flip that on its head? You know, what, why do we need leads and sales? What does that look like? So we spend a lot of time on that because it's got to be thought through. Everything else that you're going to decide about how you structure your virtual event has to come back to the why. You mentioned 
audience engagement before, right? It's a very typical thing with, with live video. We want people engaging. We want people asking questions and, and reacting to the video and that sort of thing. And you could argue that we need the same thing inside of a virtual event. Why? Is, is, you know, what does audience engagement have to do with why we're putting on the virtual event in the first place? Maybe it doesn't matter. You won't know if you haven't figured out your why for the event, right? Yeah. When we're thinking about what platform we need to use, because there's a lot of choices, you're going to have to pick one. If you've never done a virtual event before, you've never heard of Hopin or Glisser or Whova, so many options. And if you don't know your why, and the other couple of things we're going to talk about in a second, then you're going to struggle to make a selection that makes sense for the kind of event that you want that actually accomplishes whatever your goals are. So figure that out first. Second, you got to know who it is that you're trying to reach. And that's got to be specific. The more niche down you can get with your target audience, the more successful your event is going to be. And quite frankly, the easier it's going to be. And I say this from personal experience. The first few events that I put on were just broad social media marketing. Social Media Success Summit was the alliterative <laughs> name that I came up with it. And I even went so far as to allow people to talk about things that had nothing to do with social media specifically, like blogging and content marketing and digital ads. And I mean, these were very tangential to social media marketing. And I was saying, oh, yeah, if you're interested in social media marketing or digital marketing, you should come to my event. And that was okay. We had, you know, 1,000, 2,000 attendees. That was okay. But... When I start talking about a vertical like LinkedIn, when I said, hey, we're going to do a summit just on LinkedIn and every topic is specific to LinkedIn in some way, LinkedIn ads, gosh, going live on LinkedIn, so on and so forth. We had 4,000 attendees. That was our one of our best events ever. And then we switched it and said, okay, let's target a very specific audience. Let's only target marketing agencies. And then we start to refine it even further and say, you know what? We should only really be focusing in and honing in on marketing agency owners. Now we structure an event where all the content is specifically for owners. And that helps us create copy for the landing page. You have to be able to do this. You have to be able to tell people what your event is and what they're going to learn. And if you've determined your why, your why you're doing it, and who you're talking to, now you can write specifically to those people. Here's what you're struggling with. We totally understand. Here's how we're going to help. We brought together these eight speakers who are going to help you get out of your business so that you can take a vacation for the first time in five years because we know you haven't. Because <laughs> you haven't put in the processes and scaled your business so that you know, the business can run itself with you at the head. Those kinds of things. You can write to those people. I could not have put that kind of a sentence. It would have been a much better sentence, but I could not have put that kind of sentence onto the face of that very first event that I ran because I was also talking to social media managers. I was also talking to boutique agency owners and so on. And you, you mix up those audiences like that, it becomes much harder to speak to them. So yeah, that's you, the you second thing, you got to have that audience. Yeah, it makes it a much more meaningful event when you tighten it up as well. Yeah, and that's hard because people think, oh, I don't want to limit my audience. I want a big event and I want thousands of people to show up. And trust me on this. 
the more focused you get on who you're talking to, the more successful your event will actually be. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's true. Yeah. So one of the other aspects is understanding even how to get started because a virtual event is a huge project. It's not, I'm going to write a blog post this weekend kind of a project. It's, I'm going to spend the next 8, 12, 16 weeks living and breathing this event. And there will be tears and sweat and stress. And when you really get into the weeds about all the different things that have to happen, it becomes an elephantine task in front of you. So understanding that and understanding how to break that down into bite-sized chunks is a hugely important first step knowing that I need to come up with a platform, I need to come up with speakers, and I can chunk all that out and only work on the things that have the highest priority that I have help with maybe. And that help, that's the fourth most important thing, knowing who we can turn to for help. Many of the people that I talk to are sales managers or social media managers or Directors of marketing, I'm kind of throwing out some titles that will resonate with some of your audience members because they've been told (laughs) you need to go put on a virtual summit. And they kind of like looking at their CMO boss saying, well, I've never done that before and (laughs) I don't have a team. So where do I get some help? And one of the things that I walk people through in that fourth episode is understanding you have more help than you know. Sometimes there's help inside the company. Maybe you've got a team, right, that you can lean on. But if you don't, maybe there's other people that work in the company who can help you with very specific tasks. And if we did our job a moment ago and we organized and we prioritized and we bucketized the things that need to be done, we can then identify, oh, you know what? I need to have a bunch of emails sent out and I don't have time to write them myself, but we do have a copywriter on staff or maybe we've got a marketing ops department who can help me with that one very specific part of the project. And even beyond that, we've got friends, we have family, we have colleagues, and there's many ways that we can turn to those people to help us. Maybe they can't run the event for us. Maybe they can't help us even with the ideation, but they can help us with other things. They can help us at home with other tasks take some things off our plate that aren't work-related so we can devote a little more time. They can be understanding of why we're working late at night sometimes because I'll tell you that week out from your next major event, whenever that is, that's going to be a pretty scary, hairy week because there's a lot of stuff that's got to be done in just the few days leading up to the event and you're going to need all the extra time you can get. So lean on your friends, lean on your family, get the help that you need. And I think what I would want anybody to take away from this, having been involved in some virtual events, but not run them myself, they can have a profound impact on a business. And I've seen it so many times. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking social media ads, search engine optimization, that that's digital marketing, but that's, that's a really good set of ways to get attention. But a lot of the time that doesn't turn into customers. And the way I like to think about virtual events is as what I would call prospecting platforms. If you ask anybody, what's the hardest thing about selling? The answer should be getting the conversation. If I can just get a conversation, most people will say, I've got at least a 50-50% chance of turning that person into a customer. The virtual event is that, virtually speaking. It's getting lots of people in a room, building rapport, not just superficial encounters on social media, but spending an hour, two hours with amazing people. 
they get to know you really well. They build rapport and a good proportion of those when you make an offer, and this is what you're doing, making an offer generally, will turn into customers. And that's why I love virtual events and they're often the missing link in so many people's businesses. And they don't have to be big summits. They can be just a, a one day challenge event if you like. But Yeah, they, I couldn't agree more. And again, that's why we talk about the why, because maybe you don't need thousands of people mm. at your event. Right. Maybe. I mean, because I often talk to customers and I'm like, how many new clients can you handle? And they might tell me eh, 10 or 15. Like, okay, well, you probably don't want a thousand prospects tomorrow. You probably want a couple hundred really, really strong targeted prospects that you can add to your pipeline. Right. That's a great point. Yeah. I was speaking to a guy today. If he had four new clients a year, his business would be transformed because the average yeah. transaction value for him is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you can imagine something like a simple virtual event, what that could provide in that kind of situation. It just blows your mind. Yeah. So I, I would like to talk about your own content journey. Mm. One of the things I like to understand from as many guests as possible, because I meet people who come across as super confident, competent, credible, and smart. And to be honest, social media it's our job to look that way. But it's always very interesting when people are willing to share the parts of your business that you find particularly difficult. So of all the things you have to do, which are the ones that make you sigh or hide or procrastinate? Oh my gosh. The ones <laughs> that make me sigh or procrastinate. Well, I already revealed editing. Definitely yeah. do not enjoy that part, that particular process, whether it's audio or video. And in fact, I'll tell you, even though I am known for live video, I've built my business being a guest on other people's live video shows. I still to this day do remote live video production. I do not enjoy being on camera and I definitely do not enjoy or have any interest in being a host of my own show. The podcast is kind of my compromise, if you will, <laughs> where I'm I'm creating some content outside of my wheelhouse. I love to write. I literally love to write. That's the favorite part of my entire content creation process, even with the podcast, because I script those out. And so I write them. I'm writing, gosh, three, 4,000 word articles that I then read and I edit my red version of that. And that is the podcast. And then I also now have perfect show notes, right? Um, so that gets published along with the podcast, but that I dread that editing part. And I definitely, like I said, I would not want to do much live, much more live video than I'm already doing. I'm doing two shows per month, remote live production. I do guest work, that sort of thing. And I do live speaking at, at real life events, more and more of those going forward. But writing is what I love. So anything that's not writing, that's harder <laughs> for me. So something else I have to ask you about, because hmm. not many people can pull it off. And I think a lot of people assume you're either an employee or you're an entrepreneur. And something I really admire about you is you are a stellar employee for Agora Pulse, but you're also an, an independent business owner in your own right. And there'd be lots of people thinking, I thought I had to leave my job to do my own thing. So mm -hmm. what is your advice to anybody for really making that work if they want to not jump out of the frying pan and into the fire but actually enjoy the frying pan and the fire 
<laughs> well, there's some factors that make it possible. And, and first and foremost, I'm fortunate that I work for a company at Agorapulse where they enjoy, they encourage their employees to have side hustles. They like it. They think it helps keep their employees happy, engaged, which it does. And in my case specifically, because I continue to be highly active and engaged in the online marketing community, that helps my role at Agora Pulse. I'm continuing to create new connections every single day on LinkedIn. We never know where our newest connections are going to end up being a value to us, but I can tell you without a doubt, some of the connections I'm making today will be a value to Agora Pulse tomorrow. Don't know who, but that'll happen. So that's an important point is that it's gotta be something that is okay with your current situation. Because if it's not, that's going to cause stress and tension so, somehow, somewhere. They might not like what you're doing. They might not care and you might just feel guilty, whatever the case might be. So make sure that that's worked out. The second thing is you got to have time. Yeah. And how does that work with you? <laughs> it, it works at the moment because I have two young girls who are very active and busy. I have, my oldest daughter's 10. She is at her dance studio multiple evenings a week, all day on Saturdays. And my in-laws live with me. We were able to, we were really blessed, in fact, to wow. be moved into a new house, a large house, just before the pandemic started. So we had lots of yard space, lots of house space. My in-laws live with me. So we have built-in babysitters for my seven-year-old. And so I'm able to spend couple extra hours throughout the week in the evenings and almost the entirety of my day on Saturdays working. So like Saturdays are my podcast days. I'm creating long form content around virtual events on Saturdays. That's the thing. And I've worked Saturdays for years, you know, take time off when I need to because it's a super flex schedule. Uh, that's often when I devote to clients. If I've got a client who wants to do a VIP strategy day, that's when we take like three to six hours Right, and we go through everything, soup to nuts that they need to know for their virtual event. I'm going to book them on a Saturday because I already know I'm I can give them that entire day. I don't have meetings scheduled, I won't have interruptions. The family's pretty much out of the house, so that's that's how I have it structured. So, Mike, I need to ask you one question. It's the one question I ask every guest, and it's what's one thing you do now that you wish you'd started five years ago. <laughs> I'm laughing because, well, first of all, there's a laundry list of things that I should have been doing five years ago. You could talk about the podcast. You could talk about personal habits. I recently got certified in NLP. I wish I would have done that sooner. That has had already such a profound impact on the way I think, the way I approach professional relationships, personal relationships, clients, coaching, and so on. But I think the one thing that I should have done a long time ago and I should have known to do a long time ago. And that's that's the real <laughs> trick, right? Something I should have known to do a long time ago. And that is to niche down. I'm doing it with the virtual event business and the virtual event consulting. It's something I never did with the social media hat overall. If you just go to that blog, the blogs are written for anybody who wants to know about Facebook, about Twitter, about online marketing. And that's too broad. I already said, if you're doing a virtual event, you got to niche down. Well, I should have known that. I should take my own advice. So now I know, okay, with the virtual event consulting, I'm not targeting colleges. That's not to say I couldn't help a college if they came to me, but I'm not targeting them. I'm not speaking to them because their kind of virtual event is going to be different from the kind of a virtual event 
I'd put on for Agora Pulse or that Ecamm would put on or somebody like Ecamm. So those are the clients I've worked with in the past. Those are the clients I am talking to today in all of my content, B2B SaaS companies. That's who I'm talking to. I've narrowed that niche down. And I know from my experience, from everything I've studied and read and the excellence that I've mirrored from other entrepreneurs in the space, when I pick a very specific audience and a very specific problem they're having, they've never done a virtual event and they don't want to look stupid, right? That's their problem. That's their fear. I can help them with that. Now, when I'm speaking in my podcast, when I'm speaking on this interview, right? If there's a B2B sales manager who's listening to this interview right now and their boss just told them that they need to put on a virtual event, they just got shivers because I just spoke to them like in their soul. They're afraid that by this time next year, they will have been fired because they failed at putting on the kind of virtual event that was expected of them. That's powerful. And that's something I should have been doing many, many years ago. That's an awesome answer. Mike, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to connect with you, how would you like them to do that? The easy way is social media. I'm Mike Alton. A-L-L-T-O-N. Yes, two L's, please. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all the grams and networks there are. Uh, Most of my networking profiles are open. You can message me. You can follow me, whatever you'd like to do. Or save yourself a little time and go to the socialmediahat.com. And that's where you can learn all about me. You can follow my content, sign up for the newsletter, whatever you want. Mike Alton, you have been an awesome guest. Very, very generous with your knowledge. I've had a great time. Thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to see you again. This has been a real pleasure, Bob. I appreciate you having me on. And I hope that your uh, audience has picked up something from this. And if any of you have more questions, by all means, reach out. I'm happy to answer.